Now, before I go up behind the sacred desk, as they call it, I did promise you I'd let you know how I came about uh, landing on the book of Haggai for preaching. Uh, It goes back to the very first week of the sabbatical that we just took. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in this sabbatical was to plan a preaching schedule and really pray that through before the Lord through next Easter. And that is what happened. And so as I was, you know, working on things and just praying through things, considering things, sorting and sifting, uh, when, I would, when I would ask God, God, what do you want me to preach about? Uh, the strangest thing happened the first time I asked him that. Uh, the word Haggai came to my mind. Now, if the word Romans had come to my mind, I would have thought maybe I had uh, suggested that to myself. I promise you I did not suggest to myself the word Haggai. You know, that's the third to the last book in the Bible, one of the uh, minor prophets. So what did I do being the spiritual person I am but blow it off and keep going? And so about a week later, I asked God again, and the word Haggai came to my mind. And what did I do? I blew it off. And uh, kept going. This happened four times. Oh, me of uh, thick, thick-headedness. The fourth time that happened, I had a great idea. I told God, God, I'm going to read the book of Haggai. <laughs> and so I opened the book of Haggai, and y'all, there it was. It's exactly what God has for, and for me. It's about building the house of God. Now, I know the steel's going up over there. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? It's a wonder, uh, wonderful thing that God's doing, but it's so much more than the steel. It's about us. It's about his body. And so I'm going to turn and come up here while you turn to the third to the last book in the Old Testament, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, Matthew. You can kind of go back if you want to from there. And we're going to be looking at Haggai 1. 1 through 11. I want to ask this question that God is asking His people in this text, and that is, what time is it in your spiritual life? You will understand the meaning of that question in a few moments. What time is it in your spiritual life? And today I want to really look at two questions and a challenge from God to His people then and now. But first, I do think that as we begin in this book, I owe you a little bit of background to help you understand what the situation was, what was happening, and give a lot of meaning to the words as I I trust you'll be reading this book. It's only two chapters. Read it at home and, and pray over it. I know some of you are aware that the people of God in Israel, and that was the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, both turned away from God to idols Uh, Close to a hundred years before the kingdom of Judah was finally conquered, the kingdom of of Israel was conquered and the Assyrians took them off and and took them into captivity and they never returned from from Assyria. The Babylonians uh, came against Jerusalem and just raised the city to the ground, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, took the sacred articles of the temple Uh, everything and hauled them off to Babylon. But the other thing they hauled off to Babylon was the lion's share of the population and and really the kind of the intelligentsia, the the leaders, the rulers, the culture makers. And the reason they did that, and and the the Israelites were, were not the only people group that they subjugated like this. 
they did it because of the intense nationalism that the Israelites had. You know, you see that in the New Testament, and they're against the Romans, the occupying forces. Very intense in their nationalism, very intense in their traditions. And so they just basically obliterated the people, took them all to Babylon, and they were there. The entire captivity, as we call it, um, lasted 70 years when, when, when they came back. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Our captors demanded of us, sing one of the songs of of Zion of Jerusalem. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign place? Well, everything changed in the year 539 B.C. That's B.C., moving down toward the birth of Christ because Nebuchadnezzar the Great and And his successors, making the Babylonian Empire, suddenly lost their place of power to an emperor named Cyrus II, otherwise known as Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon as well as he already had the Persian Empire. This became the largest empire in the history of the world up until that point. It was splendid in its majesty, in its uh, buildings. Uh, It was just complete in its power over who the Persians conquered. But uh, God used Cyrus the Great. You know, God can use all kinds of things and all kinds of people, can't he? Because in 538, the year after he conquered Babylon, Cyrus the Great made a decree that stunned everyone. He said all the people that peoples like nations that the Babylonians have subjected and brought into captivity... You are now free to go home immediately. You don't have to go home. We'd love to have you stay here. You're free to go. And furthermore, he said to the the, the Jewish people, not only are you free to go, I, out of my own treasury, want to give you the money to buy the materials to rebuild your temple in Jerusalem. That's an incredible turn of events. Well, by that time, there were a little bit more than a million Jewish people living in Babylon as they had multiplied. There were so many of them that went, and they had multiplied over that near 70-year period. And so, of course, the the great offer went out among the million-plus Jewish people. You know how many people accepted? Out of one million, 44,000 people. Less than 5% of the people of God who were weeping by the waters of Babylon actually wanted to come home at all. They were very comfortable in their lives in Babylon, and they built their businesses, they had built their houses, and there were now generations uh, of people living in Babylon, and they were free to worship God in the synagogues in Babylon. That's where the synagogues were started, in captivity, because you didn't have a temple. So this group of people that are going to come back to Israel across 1,100-plus miles of burning sand to discover a capital city laid waste, a temple that is just ruined and, and raised to the ground, and they are basically saying, yes, I love the Lord, yes, I understand what the temple is about, and I'm willing to literally dedicate the rest of my life to restore Jerusalem and to restore the temple. And so Zerubbabel, isn't that a great name, Zerubbabel? 
Uh, he was the uh, relative of the last king, Jehoiakim, of Judah. He was appointed governor. He was a great leader. He was a courageous man. And he took Joshua, the high, who happened to be the high priest at that time, and they rounded up 44,000 people, and they marched back to Israel. And when they got to Israel... They found it just the way they thought they would. But they were so filled with zeal and commitment to God and commitment to raising up the house of God. They made an altar to Yahweh on the ruins of the temple immediately. And Joshua, the high priest, restored the sacrifices and the grace of the blood of lambs and goats all picturing Jesus, all that began to happen again in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the celebration when that began to happen again? This defines who they are. And within a year, with the materials sent by Cyrus, they had completed the entire foundation of the temple. And within a year, these incredibly beautiful timbers made out of cedar from Lebanon, purchased by Cyrus, had made their way to Jerusalem. And it's time, they didn't have steel going up, it's time for the, the, the timbers to go up. So this is a great story, right? No, this is not a great story. Because that is precisely when the trouble began. There were some Jewish people left behind uh, when they were carried to Babylon there were people who came into the land and occupied it. There was intermarriage, which is forbidden uh, among Jews. These, these were the people that became the Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans came from. So when the Jews went back to reoccupy the land of Israel and Jerusalem, the Samaritans said, yeah, we're kind of loosely Jews like you are. We'll help you build the temple. And they said no. They, they were duty-bound by God to, to say no. And the Samaritans, who would become the Samaritans, were furious and became mortal enemies of the people of Israel, tried everything they could to thwart the rebuilding, to frustrate the people of Israel. And it got rough. And there were raids. In fact, Cyrus died and his successor, they sent envoys. I'm talking about the Samaritans and actually got an injunction to stop construction from the king of Persia. So the Jews had to go back and that was reversed. But you know, the, it just ceased. And it was just difficult. And that's when things begin to change. Now you've got to understand, the people who went back, less than 5% of the whole population, I mean, these were like the, the committed people, you know? They're like the people you know in the church that really love the Lord, that just demonstrate an incredible commitment to the kingdom of God. But they changed. And they wandered from, from God. You see, what we learn in Haggai 1 is you know what they did? They started building their house rather than God's house. That's what they did. They started building their house rather than God's house. And year after year, and then this was lifted. And no, they're not getting back to their mission no, they're not getting back to rebuilding the temple so that the whole structure of Judaism and relationship with God and community no longer cared about that. We are doing fine without the church. We are doing fine without the temple. We 
have decided what we want our spiritual life to look like. They are redefining the faith in a way that suits them. And so it was in the second year of King Darius, the third ruler of the Persian emperor, that the word of the Lord came to two men who had a message for Israel. They were Haggai and Zechariah. And Zechariah began to prophesy to Israel two months after Haggai. The word of God came to Haggai, and it's interesting that uh, you'd have to know the calendars, but basically Haggai stood up and gave his first oracle, his first sermon from God to the people, August 29th, 520 B.C. That is, that is exactly what the text says. We know exactly when God said, enough. And man, when God says enough, he says it in a way that's, that gets our attention. Verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, he's talking about his people. It's kind of third person, isn't it? You can you kind of get in the feeling that he's reaching out to people who are far away from him. These people. Verse 2, the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the the hand of Haggai, the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never get your fill. You clothe yourself no one is warm and he who earns wages does so only to put it into a bag with holes thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways go up to the hills bring wood and build the house that i may take pleasure in it and that i may be glorified says the lord you looked for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Two questions and a challenge. Question number one, what time is it in your spiritual life? Question number two, how's your way working for you? And then a challenge from God to them and to us. The first is, is what time is it in your spiritual life? 
these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild my house. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses? He says, while this house lies in ruins. This is a tale of two houses. The house of God and their own house. A house of worship, of community, of sharing in the glory and grace of God and a house of doing and getting just what I want and making my life private, cut off from the house of God or interfaced to the degree that I would so choose with the house of God. Now, what is this paneled house thing? Here you are in your paneled houses, he says. Well, it's just what you think it is. I want you to think of the nicest den you've ever been in that has unbelievable wood, real wood paneling. Modern translation would be your wainscoted houses. Okay? Um, in fact, this, this word for paneled houses in all of the Old Testament is only used here and in relation to two other structures. And they are the temple... Because God ordered unbelievable paneling for his house and the royal palaces. So you kind of get the feeling here that the temple is in ruin and you have panels in your house? And those are reserved specifically for the temple and the royal palaces? What time is it in your lives spiritually God asks, is it always time for you to build into your own life? Is it always time for it to be about you and yours? And is it never time for it to be about other people and the house of God and the kingdom of God? Is it always time for you to control access of people in your life? And it is never time to, to mix and rub shoulders and get messy with people who need you. And who need God? It's a great question, isn't it? What time is it in our spiritual lives? It's relevant. And you know, statistically, in the United States at least, where we see a customization, an individual customization of spirituality with regards to the church, and we see a withdrawal from real community, from being under the Word of God regularly, under the sacraments, all that God wants to give. We see this. Now look, it's not that God hates paneled houses. He ordered paneling for His house. This isn't so much about paneling and houses as it is about hearts and where we derive our meaning. And you have to understand the biting irony here. It's way beyond letting the house of God alone while we build our paneled houses. It's how they built their paneled houses. If you look at verse 8, God commands them to, quote, go up on the mountain and cut down trees, make some timbers, bring it down and build my house. 
And maybe if you are astute and you've been listening carefully to me this morning, maybe you might say, well, that doesn't make sense. I thought King Cyrus bought the finest timbers in the world, the cedars of Lebanon, and had those timbers delivered to the site of the temple. Why do they have to go up to the mountains and cut trees? Well, he did deliver it to the site of the temple. Are you ready for this? And when the hiatus came from building, and then they decided it really wasn't worth committing their lives to anymore, and we can have a... We can have Judaism without a temple. They took those beams for God's house and they carved them into the most beautiful panels in the world. It's amazing, isn't it? For their own houses. You see, that's the biting irony here. Not only are they not building God's house, they're taking God's wood and building theirs. And yet, and yet... God doesn't even condemn them for that. He loves them. He says, come on, let's let's reconnect. Come on. He doesn't condemn them. You see, this isn't about houses finally. It's about our hearts. The houses are just exhibit A of where their hearts had gone. So could I ask, why did it matter? I mean, can't you worship God anywhere? Why did it matter? Why does it matter? I mean, after all, God told Solomon. Solomon, you know, dedicated the temple, the first temple. This will be the second temple. God told Solomon in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, O God, Solomon said to God. How much less this house that I've built? Solomon understood that God isn't confined to a a temple. So why is it so important? The temple is not there for God in the sense that He needs something. The temple is there because God wants to be with His people. God wants a people. As Paul said in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples made by hands of men, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. For He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. No, the temple's a gift. The temple is the center of of relationship with Yahweh. The temple is the, the, uh, the overlap between heaven and earth where God's glory has come, where God has placed His name, it's called His, His honor, His glory to dwell in that most holy place. This is a gift of God. And they say, nah, no thank you. It's there because he wants to condescend to his people. He wants to have a relationship with his people. He wants his people to be, remember, you are my called people. You are my people, my special people. You're different. They had to wear different clothes. They had to eat different stuff. The whole point is that they are different, right? A people belonging to the Lord, a counter-cultural community of truth 
and grace and love and worship and life being formed by God. It's beautiful. And they say, Nah, we can worship God without all that. The temple was that overlap of of heaven and earth, if you will. It's where the lambs were sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin for people on earth. It's where the glory of God dwelled and the overwhelming beauty and majesty of God was shown. Today, you know where that is? That's the church. We got far too low a view of church generally in our culture. We don't meet with God in the most intimate way in one place anymore. You know, that's what all the you had you had to come down to the temple. You know all that stuff, right? You had to go down to the temple. Not anymore. No, we can meet with God anywhere now. And that's because Jesus is the overlap between heaven and earth. Jesus is that Lamb of God. We don't need a temple to do lambs of God and bulls being slain. Jesus, once and for all, shed His own blood for us. Jesus is the manifest glory of God in human flesh, the Savior who has come. Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. And are you ready for this? Jesus, we read over and over, is the head of His church, the head of His body. Because Jesus doesn't need His church, Jesus wants His church. Jesus has condescended God come to us to make us whole through salvation, through His sacrifice rather than our own works, so that He can take us up into Himself, into His body, and He can give us what we need for life that is truly life. Now, the church is defined by the Scriptures as being a gathering of believers under Jesus, the King, under the Word of God preached, the sacraments of God given. You know, like the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, I'm giving this to my church where leadership is biblically constituted and we live under the authority of God's Word and under the the accountability of biblical eldership and deacons with God's Word, with the sacraments. These are the marks of the church. And you know, bottom line, can I say it in a down-home way? It ain't natural not to live with your family. Because see, we're not only the children of God through the Lamb of God who brings us into a relationship. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are sheep. It's bad when the sheep get away from the fold. That's when bad things happen. Isn't that the whole metaphor that Jesus uses over and over and over? We need the shepherd. We need the flock. We, we need the family. You've got to understand, Christianity is not just a message. It's not just a message. It's not just a, a category shift from hell to heaven, from not knowing God to knowing God. It's not just something personal only that just happens when, when you get salvation and you never have to worry about going to hell again. That's not, Christianity's not a message. It is a message, but it's not simply a message. It is a life. 
and a life together in the body, under the head, who is Jesus. It is the only shot we really have to live a life that is truly life. And God is saying, what time is it? It's always time for us to consider living life the way we want to. When is it going to be time for us to consider living life the way Jesus wants to give it? Now, I know, look, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all are here! Okay? I'm preaching to the choir. I understand that. But it's beautiful, isn't it? What God has for you. What God has for me. This is a countercultural community based on the values of the gospel, on grace and love and forgiveness and patience and kindness and the glory of God Himself. Look, the church, we know the church. The church is where sinful people like us are learning grace, right? We're learning how to love. We're learning God's truth. We're responding to God's claims and God's commands. We're responding to God's challenges. The Great Commission. The Great Commandment. The church is where we and our children can begin to give our lives away to other people and to God rather than simply being takers. That's significant. Where do we learn to love like this? outside of where the gospel is reinforced at every turn. We need the church. Now, I know some of you may be saying, the church isn't a place. You're right. The church universal, the the sum total of all the believers in the world, and you might as well add all the believers who've ever been and whoever are going to be. You're right. It's not a place. But you know what? You're wrong as well. Because the church is always a gathering of people. Even in the Old Testament. The church is always where sinners gather and and learn how to love and, and learn the truth. It's always the church in Corinth, isn't it? The church in Rome. The church in Ephesus. You get it? It's always where the elders and the deacons are and, and where people serve. And there's, there's just all kinds of ministry going on among sinners who are being shown something better. Look, I know there's cynicism about the church. And I know that some of it is well-deserved. But you know, I just want to say to that cynicism, okay, we're sinners. Our problem today as the church, isn't that we are so into church and giving our lives away and we're still just these these people that don't care about people. No, our problem is we're not sure what time it is spiritually in our lives. Whether it's time to actually try the church the way Jesus the head wants us to have that blessing and share that blessing. So, What time is it spiritually in our lives? Secondly, moving quickly. How's that working for you? How's your way working for you? Verse 5, consider your ways. Evaluate how that's working. Consider, evaluate how that's working for you. Verse 5, now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much 
and you've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, you're not warm. And this is the one I love. And he who earns wages does so to put, it, put them into a bag with holes. It's never enough. You can't fill it up. God's put a hole in the bottom of it on purpose. Because He has made us for Himself. He has made us for one another. He has made us to be a countercultural community that can declare real love for the world. And that means we've got to learn how to love under God's grace within the fellowship of believers. Verse 9, you look for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. How's that working for you? No, we don't need to work on the temple anymore. Now, we've already used the timbers for ourselves. No, we've redefined all that. We're fine with God. We, we have customized our experience with God. And God said, ask, how's that working for you? Answer, not good. <laughs> if we're honest. Jesus declared no fewer than six times the principle that I will read to you in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever would save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Principle, anybody who's trying to make their own lives, not going to have a life, a real life. Anybody who's willing to lose their life for the gospel, for love, for grace, for King Jesus in community, you will find it. You want to find your life? There's only one group of people you will ever find your life with. It's the church. And they're awful people. <laughs> we are sinners who have a Savior. He is moving in the hearts of people like us. And He's shaping us. And He's teaching us. And there's reality. A life stuffed with stuff lived by our exclusive choices only, but not the reality of love and grace and community is actually cheap. It's cheap. It's, it's not worth your life. You only get one life. It's not worth it. And I want to tell you, people think it's worth it, and it takes them years to find out, wasted years to find out that it didn't work, it couldn't work, it's not going to work. Life like that simply cannot sustain any real meaning. That's why we have to have more all the time, right? It's a hole in it. It's a cistern with a hole. It's broken. It doesn't hold anything truly. And God wants to fill up His church. You know, they say in the suburbs, suburbs representing probably the most consistently um, um, wealthiest place, for regular people in the history of mankind? Yes? Very controlled place. I'm not, I'm not against suburbs, by the way. I live in one. I have some wainscoting in my house, or at least crown molding. They say the suburbs are a place of quiet desperation. How can that be? How can... The place of greatest wealth and ease and choices and ball fields and dance studios and practice places and 
good schools with high ACT scores. How could it be that a place like that is a place of quiet desperation? We know the answer to that. Because it's got all got a hole in it. If that's your meaning. We need the church. And I tell you, we need the church to get back on track every week. And I don't just mean preaching. Let me close by saying something about Jesus and then just stating the challenge. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the overlap. He's the temple, so to speak. He offered His own life as fulfillment to all those goats and bulls in a once and for all sacrifice. He is the Son of God who is able to offer Himself for sinners once And it is salvation. It is the connection. When Jesus died on the cross, they say He grabbed heaven and He grabbed man and brought them together. When He said, it is finished. It's beautiful. He's the overlap. And He's the head of His church. And when we are born again, when we put our trust in Jesus, whether you like it or not, you're born again into His church. The question is not whether you're born into His church. The question is not whether children of believers are born into the visible, tangible, peopled church. The question is what you're going to do with your church membership that God has already given you. He loves you that much. He basically said, saved church, go for it. Be a part of it. Grow. Rub shoulders. Work out messy stuff together. Learn grace. Learn forgiveness. Dwell in a kind of glory that is nowhere else. So, what time is it in your life spiritually? How's that working out for you? And then the challenge is simply verse 8. Go up to the hills. Bring wood. Build the house. That I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Get up, he says. Give your life in reality. In focus upon God. Build up the house of God. God will take pleasure in it. And His pleasure will become our pleasure. God will be glorified in our lives. And you know, I was... I was riding my bike along the trace and I was thinking about this and this is kind of what I said and I want to say it to you on my bike. There will be gathered brightness of the majesty and glory of God when we are gathered together and there will be symphonic music of the gospel that only happens when the players are playing together. And it's beautiful. Next week what it looks like to return to God. And you're going to be shocked at how much God wants us to return and how God will help us at every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us a heart for you? Thank you, Jesus, that you are the, you are the overlap. You are where heaven and earth meets. And in our hearts, as we have placed our faith in you, you have brought us into the very throne room of heaven, even as we're praying right now with confidence because of Jesus. Lord, would you help us to give our lives away rather than hoard them? Would you help us to relinquish control under the the leadership of King Jesus 
Oh Lord, would you give us your word? Would you give us your sacraments and the beauty of the reminding of grace and your presence? Lord, would you give us the accountability that we need every week to remember your grace? Would you give sinners like us the blinding beauty of your majesty together in the symphonic music of the gospel? Would you do that, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.